Thank you, Ashley. Uh, thanks for sharing. Um, you know, we, we send out mission uh, folks to go out on missions uh, throughout, the, throughout the year, throughout the summer, and so it's always a, uh, yeah, it's an always an awesome opportunity for us to, to be able to hear um, because you send through your prayers and you send through your gifts, uh, financial gifts, and, and they come back and they report. Um, we do this together as a team, so it's a really a, a blessing for us to be able to do that. So yeah, thanks, Ashley, for sharing. Can um, we just do this real quick? Can you smile <laughs> at someone and to the person next to you say, you encourage me. Can you do that? A couple people next to you. All right, well, uh, you guys encourage me, you guys encourage me. Uh, the definition of encourage, um, the simplest definition is to put courage into, uh, courage and, and courage into courage, putting courage, putting strength uh, into uh, each other. Uh, when I was doing youth ministry, when I was a youth pastor, um, we used to meet on Friday nights, so we meet on Saturday nights now, and we now call it SNF for Saturday Night Fellowship back in the day when I was serving our youth ministry, uh, when guys like uh, Pastor Daniel and, you know, Carlton Bryan and these guys, Albert Kang, were students, we used to call it FNF for Friday Night Fellowship. Uh, so we've upgraded. Our names got, have gotten cooler through the years. But when we're doing FNF, uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't have YouTube teaching us all these, like, cool games from Asia or cool games from, you know, the, wherever it is. And so we did these, like, primitive games that we thought were really fun. One of the games we, uh, we played was Name That Drink. <laughs> so uh, we played these games where we'd get into like different teams and then we'd send a representative up from each team and, and they'd all stand here and we'd blindfold them and we'd give them a drink and have them drink something like water. And then as soon as you know what it is, raise your hand. As soon as everyone's hand was up, we'd go down the line, what is it? Water, 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 water. Oh, all right, yeah, yeah, that's great. And so, you know, everyone could get water right. But then we got trickier and trickier. We would do like... Uh, Publix brand cola, and they would drink it. Ah, oh, that's easy. Coke. Wrong. It's Publix cola. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know you are going to trick us like that. Tahiti treat. Some people would say it's Hawaiian punch. No, it's Tahiti treat. There was one, one guy up there. He got almost everything wrong. He got water right, but everything else he got wrong. There was, I mean, this was the craziest one. All five up there blindfolded, and we gave them Sprite. Sprite, you know, not like... Publix lemon lime soda or, you know, I you don't know, Sprite. But it was Sprite, legit Sprite. And so everyone drank it. Right? He was the first one to raise his hand. He was so confident. And so we went down the line from the last to the first, and they said, Sprite, 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 Sprite. And this guy, so confident, raised his hand. He said, Diet Coke. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you got to be kidding me. His teammates were like, oh, my gosh, like, we were about to win, and you give Diet Coke. Sprite is not even in the same zip code, not even the same family. But he thought that Sprite was Diet Coke. He had no idea what was being poured into his mouth. You know, we're all pouring something into the lives of other people. Did you know that? We're all pouring something. It's not a drink, but it's something else. Can I ask you, what do you think you're pouring into other people's lives? Here are some things that we might be pouring into. You might think you're pouring in something refreshing like old-fashioned lemonade, but really a lot of us are pouring gossip into each other's hearts. Uh, This is toxic gossip. 
Some of us think, I'm giving energy to people, Mountain Dew, but really you're just pouring envy into each other's lives. The things that you say, the things that you talk about, making other people envious of you or envious of other people that you talk about, others, this beautiful thing that we think we're pouring is really fear. When God has called someone to take a step of faith and they think, I really ought to do this, and instead of seeing with faith, you begin pouring fear into their lives. Others of us, maybe it's because of gossip or maybe because of fear or something else, but uh, we're pouring discord into our communities. You talk about people the way that you do. Instead of unifying the body, instead of bringing people together, instead of pouring life into one another, you're dividing people. Hey, I'm only saying this as a way of, of showing my concern for my brother, for my sister, but really what you're doing is you're putting these negative thoughts about that person in someone else's mind. It's gossip at best. It's sowing seeds of discord at worst in others. Throughout this series, we've been talking about being courage pourers, and so our aim and our desire is that every single one of us would be a kind of people who are pouring courage into each other's lives. That's my hope. That's my desire, that we could be a community of people who pour courage because when you begin to encourage people, and that becomes not only a thought, not only an action, not only a habit, not only a character, but a destiny, and you begin to pour encouragement into other people, the world, there's no limits to how you can change the world. And you can become the most important person in somebody in many people's lives if you make a commitment to saying, I can only give what I've got. I want to be filled with the right things so that I can pour courage into the lives of other people. We've been studying how to do that without even saying a word by looking at the life of a man named Joseph. Joseph so did this, not only on the daily, but as a lifestyle, that people just started calling him, dude, you know what? You are a courage pourer. We're going to call you Barnabas, the son of encouragement, because that's all you're doing. Whenever you open your mouth, whenever you don't open your mouth, the way that you smile, the way that you're eager, the way you're excited through your generosity, every time people are around you, Barnabas, we just want want to run through a wall for the kingdom of God. And that's what I long for us to be, a community of people like this who would pour life and pour courage into the hearts of other people. We're going to continue looking at Barnabas and Saul as we turn to Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 13. We look at Acts chapter 12, verse 25, but as we turn there, I want to kind of set up what's going on here. It's about 15 years after Jesus has lived, he's been crucified, he was laid to rest in a tomb, he broke through the tomb, he showed himself to people for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. And these once fearful disciples who were scared for their lives, all of a sudden, because they saw the risen Lord, are going around telling people in Jerusalem, dude, we saw Jesus alive. Like, we touched him, we ate with him. This was really him. Wasn't a ghost, it wasn't AI, it wasn't anything like that. He was a real deal Jesus And he was alive, and their lives were changed. And so they started telling everybody in Jerusalem about Jesus as a fact of human history. It's not just some uh, Christian people wrote this book and said, hey, this is what we believe with no evidence. In human history, non-Christian historians are saying this is what happened. This man died. He was buried. The tomb is empty. People saw him. And so because this this small group of 11 are starting to get bigger and bigger and bigger, the Roman Empire and the Jewish establishment is getting really concerned And so they say, let's thwart this movement. Let's start killing these people. And so the henchman, the leader of this terrorist group of people killing Christians is a man named Saul. And so he's putting them in jail. He's killing them. 
All of these crazy things are happening. And because of that persecution out of Jerusalem, people scatter to the surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria. And that's what Jesus said was going to happen. When the Spirit of God comes, you're going to witness in Jerusalem and then to the surrounding areas. Ultimately, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. But they didn't want to scatter necessarily, and so persecution is forcing them to go forth. Last week, we saw this huge hinge point in history where for the first time, people were brought into the church who are not Jewish people. We have one person that I know in our congregation named Nathan Mullins, who is a Jewish man. He put his trust in Jesus Messiah, but the rest of us, uh, unless I'm mistaken, are not Jewish. So we give credit for God's working through the church in Antioch because somebody took a step of faith and said, let's try. Let's tell, tell these non-Jewish people about Jesus. And people started believing, and the church started growing. And so we ended in, in chapter 11. Chapter 11 ends with this famine throughout the area, and in Jerusalem, the church is struggling. And so the church in Antioch says, you know, we got, we got a little bit of, we can give some money, collect some resources. And so they got money, and through this guy named Barnabas and guy named Saul, they sent money to Jerusalem in order that their church might be sustained. And so that's what happens at the end of chapter 11. In chapter 12, it talks about more persecution that happens to the Christians. And at the end of chapter 12, this is where we pick up in verse 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, okay, this was their mission to take the money to Jerusalem, the church there, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, he's the, that's the one who uh, uh, was the one who oversaw that whack trial and sentenced Jesus to, uh, to death, called him guilty. Um, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. This is God's word. What happens, in, again, this massive pivot point in the history of the church. Last week we saw this first major shift where the church is not just for Jewish people, it's open to Gentiles now. Today what we're seeing is this huge movement where the force was not come inside. What is that, what is that physics term where all the emotion is like this and it brings people inside? Is that centripetal force? Yeah? Uh, so it, it, at first it was centripetal force. Now it's the other force that's thrusting them outward. And it's not persecution that's pushing them outward. It's the call of God. And they're going forth for the first time, the gospel from Antioch going to the ends of the earth in fulfillment of the promise of God. Pouring courage. This is what Barnabas did. And Saul is beginning to be contagious with him. And this is what they do. Three thoughts. How can we pour courage into the lives of other people without even saying a word? It's the first thing. Courage pourers know how to finish well, if you want to pour courage into somebody, uh, you got to learn how to finish well. What does that mean? Verse 25, chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So it's kind of matter of fact here, but it's pretty huge when you read that they finished their mission. 
Literally, it means they accomplished their mission. They finished their task. They fulfilled their mission. This is huge because later in Paul's life, it's not the end of their lives, but in that mission, that particular season of life, they finished that well in order that they might end well not just in a moment, but in their lives. Because you come to the end of the Apostle Paul's life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he's old, he's dying, he's in prison, and he writes to his disciple Timothy, and he says, the end has come. And this is what he says. He says, I have fought the fight, fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I've kept the faith. He finished well in his life, but it was a lifelong habit of finishing well in each of the missions that he had. Here's why, here's why it's so important. Because when you read through the Bible, okay, you will pick up on a common theme, that all of the heroes in Scripture are not really all that heroic. First of all, they're normal people. They're jacked up people. They're messed up people. They've got all these flaws. Not many of them. There may be like one or two of them who the Bible paints a picture of as them being pretty stellar in their character. Not much that's bad about them. But for the majority of biblical heroes, they not only have some fatal flaws, but according to Paul Tripp, 70% of biblical heroes did not end their lives well. That's huge. That means the majority of leaders upon whom this Christian faith is built did not end their lives well whether it be King Saul, whether it be King Solomon, whether it be Samson, whether it be Noah, whomever it is, Moses did all these great things, but he could not enter into the land of the promise because he could not control his anger at the people for the ways in which they were treating him, the ways that they were treating God. 70% of the heroes of the faith did not finish well. And so it's crucial when you read that they finished their mission Guys, if you want to be people who pour courage into the lives of other people, we have to learn how to finish a season well. I don't know what that season looks like for you. Maybe you've been called to serve in a certain way. You're a house church shepherd. You're a uh, Bible study teacher. You committed to, to, to teaching Awana for the semester. You've committed to serving a small group at our youth gathering. Maybe uh, <clears throat> you're a parent and your child is, <clears throat> your, your child is growing into puberty and I just feel like, screw this, man. He, he don't listen. She don't listen to me. Forget it. I'm just going to let him do whatever. He, whatever that season of life is that you find yourself in, for some of you who are finishing up your high school year in a few months, finish well because that's how you pour courage into other people because here's our reality, friends. Here's a reality of life. How you finish will define your legacy. How you finish is how people will remember you. University of Virginia basketball team, 2017-2018, number one team in the country for a great stretch of the season. They get to the NCAA championships, and betting people are putting all of their money on UVA. But in the first round of the playoffs, they lose to the University of Maryland. Not Maryland, the ACC, the Big Ten team, but University of Maryland, Baltimore County that no one's ever, <laughs> except for one sister, has ever heard of. And so the legacy of UVA is not national champions, not the number one team in the nation. They become the first team in history to lose in the first round as a number one seed to a number 16 seed. That's their legacy. They did not finish well. How you finish, my friends, 
will define your legacy. You know people have done that? Seniors in high school, they're graduating, and hey, you know what? Once they got into college, they stopped coming out to church, stopped being involved at, at SNF. Does that pour courage into your life? Yeah, oh, I want to be like that. We got to finish well. Whatever season you find yourself in, if you're moving soon or you think you're moving soon, however long you're here, finishing well means you be faithful to the very end. Not faithful until a month and then I'm just going to, you know, get lazy and do whatever I want to do. You finish well until the, until the very end you run the race for Christ. Because that's not ending that chapter well. That's building habits in you for how you finish different seasons of your life. When I was in, in college, when I was a, a junior in college, a third year, I was part of a campus ministry, and my life had been changed through that campus ministry. And these, these older brothers who had been investing into my life, uh, people that I saw from afar who were just doing great work for our church and for our campus ministry, would spend time just, you know, teaching us different things, sharing Bible studies with us. And, and I remember watching them because as a, junior, as a third year student, I'd be graduating in a year. I'm going to be in their same shoes, applying for jobs, looking at different things, following the call of God. And I wanted to learn what it was to finish well. And so I watched these older brothers and sisters. I lived in the same apartment complex with them. And I remember watching their lives. That last semester of college, they're graduating. They're moving on to this new season. We're not going to have these moments together. We're all scattering to different places. We're not going to see each other. So we've got to have fun. We've got to make memories. This is all we're going to have at the end of it all. They stayed up until 3, 4 in the morning watching movies, eating late at night, playing mafia until 3 in the morning, playing cards, one o'clock in the morning, going out, grabbing food, bringing it back, and, and these group of people would uh, hang out together again. And I remember they were having fun, and, and, and granted, that's cool. But I remember thinking as a third-year student, watching these people who had given themselves to the lives of other people for the glory of God, I thought to myself, I don't think that's how I want to end my college life. Until my last day on campus, I want to give my life to seeing people come to know the Lord. I want to give my life to seeing a revival come onto my campus. I want to give my life to invest in the people and to pour into them. I want to do the very things I've been doing for three years that last year to the best of my ability so that people, when I leave, they would, I didn't, I didn't think this way, but <clears throat> that when, they, when I left, they would say, you know what, UVA is a better place because of him. That UVA is not the same because he was here at our school. That our lives are different for life and for eternity. I wanted to finish well, and I want you to finish well. Whatever the season of life you find yourself in. You've got wanderlust to go to different places. I want to go to here for college. I want to go there for a job. I want to go to this place. That's fine. If you feel that's God's call in your life, then you follow that. You spread your wings, and you soar like an eagle in the place where God's calling you. But end well. Because that's what people are going to remember. It says here, Barnabas and Saul had finished their, had accomplished their task. So finish well, because when you do on the way out, you're still pouring courage into the lives of other people, and your life continues to speak after you've gone. That's why I love about Pastor Daniel. Next Sunday is his last Sunday as a youth pastor with us, but he's told me, hey, you know what, Dio, as long as I'm here, 
I'm going to do whatever I can, whatever you need me to do, whatever you let me do, I want to do in order that I can do my best for our church until God calls me somewhere else. That's what it means to finish well. Whatever season you're in, wherever you might be, you do that, you pour courage into the lives of other people. Not this, in, in, we can talk about retirement because retirement uh, is something that we talk about in our country, but the Bible doesn't talk about that. It's like until you die, like 120 years old, they still on their deathbed telling people about Jesus, preaching Jesus, laying their hands on people and praying because there ain't no such thing as retirement in Scripture. You could retire from work, but you never retire from living for the glory of God. Amen? Finish well because you pour courage in the lives of other people when you do. That's the first thing. Second thing that we see here is that courage pours know where to get filled. We talked about this last week. You can't give what you don't have. I want to be an encouraging person. I want to love people. I want to pour courage. I don't want to pour these things into other people, but you can only give what you've got. If in your heart you're divided because you're not confident in your identity, with other, with, 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 in, your identity in Christ, you're going to be causing division because your heart is divided. If you're constantly envying other people, you're going you're to pour envy into the lives of other people. If you've got courage in you, then you'll give that courage to other people. Last night, I uh, met with our house church shepherds, and as, um, at a certain point in the night, some of the sisters, I think this is a sister thing more than a brother thing, because uh, I don't mind going to the gas station and, and filling up the gas tank. I try and do it when there's like a quarter tank left, but uh, three of these sisters, all of them were like, oh, no, I go until it gets to the E, until that light comes on, and until it gets to like the danger zone. Like, we don't like going to the gas station. I said, oh, you can't do that. That's like so bad. That's how like engine failure happens and your car ends up dying. But the good thing is, if that were to ever happen in our cars at home, if I get into a car that Olivia's been driving, it just happens to be on empty. The good thing is, I know that there's a gas station, a place to fill up close by. If there was a meter in your heart, if I could look, if people could look and see, not just your faces, but a meter of your heart, how full or empty would you be? How full or empty would your meter say? Some of your lights are coming on right now. Dangerously empty. But here's a good thing, that the nearest filling station is a lot closer than you think. In fact, you can go there any time, any place, because it's there. This is what they did, verse 1, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... Worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. You know, throughout Scripture, we see that these are places where our hearts become full. In your presence, the psalmist says, there's a fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures evermore. When we worship when we pray, when we fast, this is where our hearts begin to get filled, and you see that meter go up and up and up. It's kind of cool, like you, when you, you're at the gas station and you're filling up, and, you, and they have the, the ones where you can let it automatically fill up, and it'll stop when it stops, and you're sitting in the car listening to your worship music or listening to the podcast of today's sermon because you want to be reminded because you love the Word of God so much, or you're listening to your Bible on, on tape, and, and, and you've got the car clicked on, the engine's not running, but you see that meter go up and up from empty to full. Doesn't that feel awesome? Not really, but, but wouldn't it be awesome if you could see your spiritual meter 
go from empty to full. It's beginning to get fuller and fuller and fuller. And then you feel like, man, I'm ready to go. How'd that happen? They were worshiping the Lord. Not just talking about like this. This should not be, Sunday should not be the best expression of your worship. It should complete your worship in the sense that individual sparks come together and then But this should not be your best worship. It should not be your only worship. The best worshipers on Sunday are the best worshipers Monday through Saturday. So you get into your car. I don't know what you do. You put on your Spotify saying on Sunday uh, playlist, and then you start jamming out, and you start worshiping, and your car it gets, starts getting steamy because you're singing and praying, and, and you can't see. You've got to turn on the, the, the defog or defrost, whatever it is, and, and that worship, that car becomes a place of revival. Yeah, he's talking about how Sunday worship is a sign, not a substitute for Monday through Saturday worship. It's a reflection of, not a replacement of, your Sunday, uh, Saturday to, to Monday to Saturday worship. Right? Sunday shouldn't be the only worship you give, nor should it be the best worship. Because when we worship God in, you've heard this before, the secret to life is your life in secret. And the secret to worship is your worship in secret. You have a hard time on Sunday mornings? Can I say, here's one of the best things that you can do. Read the Word because the Word always drives worship and then become a worshiper of God in the private, personal place. That worship then begins to pour life into the lives of other people. It's not just worship. It's praying. We pray. This is where we begin to get filled. Not just, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Not that kind of, or, or uh, you know, praying for your meals. Or not even praying. Praying on Wednesday is awesome, right? Corporate prayer, but praying on your own. You build a relationship with God. You learn how it is that you can get filled with God, filled with His Spirit. See, the Word of God, okay? Word of God is like putting wood on the ground of your heart, but it's in prayer that your heart comes alive in fire. This is where intimacy with God happens. A lot of people can read the Word, and dry up, but when you read the Word and you pray, you begin to grow up and you begin to light up. Your heart begins to come alive in Him because this is where, in prayer, is where we really begin to experience an intimacy with God. If your meter is low, don't just keep saying, I feel empty, I feel dry. Unless something changes, nothing's going to change. And we can talk all we want about these things. Worship, prayer, and fellowship, get into relationships with people with whom you can do this together. Remember when I was uh, during my sabbatical in, in Vancouver, my friend Dave and I were up there. We're both pastors and both on sabbatical, and we both took a class up there. Uh, from 8 to 12, we would learn, and then we'd drive around. We'd eat food. We'd ride bikes. We'd do, you know, kinds of, like, funny things like that. And, and we're going up to um, this mountain called Whistler Mountain, and there's this beautiful uh, highway called the, the Sea to Sky Highway. And after we'd been learning these truths and, and just spending time um, just soaking in the truth of the gospel, every morning we'd wake up and we would pray, whether it be our Airbnb or in the car, be praying and just, man, God, our hearts coming alive at 7.30 in the morning before we get into that classroom so that everything that professor is teaching is just burning up within us. And we go to uh, drive this two-hour drive up to, to, to Whistler, and uh, neither of us are, are worship leaders, we're pastors. <laughs> so 
we don't sing very well. I sing probably better than he does, but he, I'm not very good either. But he's like, hey, uh, as we're looking at the mountains, we're looking at the sea, we're looking at this, like, just the beauty of creation and nature. He's like, let's sing. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. I was like, right now? <laughs> like, you got the song or something? He's like, no, we just sing in a cappella. Together, you and me. <laughs> we just singing. Right? And he's, he's singing this, like, vibrato opera, and it sounds really funny. But uh, it's this, like, beautiful experience of worship. It's in the car. It's worshiping God. Fellowship is when you find people with whom you can worship and pray together anywhere. That's fellowship. I know you know all of these things. Yeah, okay, okay. This is nothing new. Here's, we need to be reminded of things more than we need to be taught. So just do it. (laughs) But here's the other thing. Two times in verses 2 and 3 it says, and fasting. And when they had fasted. Uh, I know fasting is like the most boring of the spiritual disciplines. Like, what can you talk about about fasting? You're just saying, don't eat. That's fine, yeah. When we, when we hear about fasting these days, it's usually in connection with health, right? Health benefit. Oh, my gosh, like your immune system is going to skyrocket as you begin to fast, or you're going to lose weight as you do this intermittent fasting, or you're going to feel so much better. Your mind acuity is going to be so much sharper when you fast. He's not talking about that kind of fasting here. When Barnabas and Saul were trying to lose weight, while they were praying and worship. That's not what he's saying. They're fasting for a spiritual purpose. And in Jesus' time, after Jesus' time, uh, Wednesdays and Fridays were days of fasting for the people of God. It was their way of refocusing their hearts upon the beauty of Jesus. Don't we need to do that sometimes? Like, not refocusing our hearts on what I need to do for Jesus or refocusing my heart on how I want to live for Jesus, all that is important, but to focus our hearts on the beauty and the worth of Jesus within our lives. Because here's what fasting does that nothing else can do. Fasting says, Jesus, you are better than this. You're better than food. Man, I love food. You love food. We love food. But when we fast, we're saying, Jesus, you are better than food. And maybe when we start fasting, we don't feel that, but our hearts begin to get shifted in that place where we begin to say, yeah, you know what, Jesus, you are better than food. We we not only fast, but we worship and we pray, and then we begin to agree with the Apostle Paul that knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, not my lunch, not my dinner, not my chocolate, not my ice cream, but you are everything to me. Don't we need that? A recovery of that? Because there have been recoveries in worship, Hillsong, Vineyard, all of these uh, Elevation Church and New Life Worship, people putting out this work. There's been these renewals in worship, renewals in prayer with this IHOP movement and other movements like that, prayer meetings and stuff. But there hasn't been this great renewal in fasting. And Bill Bright, the founder of Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, who on many occasions would fast for 40 days, said it's when these three avenues begin coming together that the church will begin to see the move of God in a way that we have not seen, in a way that we long to see. 
would you join in fasting as your way of saying, Jesus, you are better than these things? Because when we fast, we begin to realize that Jesus, you're better. You fast from social media. Jesus, you're better than seeing my Instagram like count go up. Jesus, you're better than seeing my tweet retweeted by multiple people. Jesus, you're better than having Justin Bieber follow me. Is he really better than those things? Because when we fast from these things, we allow our hearts to begin to turn in that way to say, God, what I've prayed with my mind and my heart, I'm beginning to feel with my comfort as I move from comfort to discomfort in order that through your work in me, the discomforted would find comfort through my life. Jesus, you are better than these things. I want to encourage us and challenge us to begin to think and to dream, especially if you've been working on praying on something, praying for something, praying for someone, praying for a breakthrough in your life that you have yet to see for many years. Keep on praying until you see it. But maybe God is speaking to your heart right now, saying, why don't you incorporate fasting as your way of saying, God, this much I want that. This much I want you to move out of comfort into uncomfortability in order that eternal comfort will be brought to people who are in need of it. For the past 15 years, and I, and I don't say this to toot my own horn, but to say, hey, let's do this together. The past 15 years of my life, every Wednesday, uh, I've been fasting in order to pray for our church. Say, Lord, we need a revival in our church. God, we need you to work in our Sunday morning times. Lord, we need you to work in our house churches, in our youth ministry, in our families. Lord, we need you to work, and on Wednesday night, uh, we pray uh, at our prayer meeting, and uh, it's not like on Wednesdays, there's this like spiritual mountaintop where I see Jesus. It's usually pain and drudgery and hardship, but on Thursdays, when I, when I look at my sermon text, it's like all of these things are just coming alive in me. Right? Tuesday night, starting at 8 or 9 o'clock, I begin fasting until Wednesday night after prayer meeting is done. I want to encourage you, especially if you're a leader, if you're teaching, if you're leading worship, if you're a shepherd, if you're a child of God who just wants to see the move of God, can I encourage you? Yeah, not, oh, yeah, I, I could stand to lose about seven pounds also. Not, not, but your motivation. Jesus, I want to see you. I want to I know you. I want to see people's lives change. I want to meet with you. I want to encounter you. I want to see you in a new way. I want chains to be broken in my life. I want addictions to be ceased in my life. I want to see the glory of God take over my heart as the waters cover the seas all of my life. I want to encourage you to do that. Let's fight for God's glory in our church, in our world, in our lives. Let's see more of Jesus within us. Because what happens after this season of fasting is literally the world is transformed. 
From this place, from this place, the gospel goes forth, and this becomes the genesis of Paul's first missionary journey, out of which 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament will be written. Every church that's planted is planted as a result of this movement of fasting and prayer because they said, God, we're going to give ourselves to be filled with you, and the world is going to be changed. From that movement, 1.2 billion people claim the name of Jesus Christ in our world today because these people said, God, we know where to get filled in order that we might pour courage into the lives of other people. You have no idea what can happen through your life when you get filled and you get emptied for the glory of God because you know where you can come back to being filled. Because you see, when Barnabas and Saul end their mission well, it prepares them. Faithfulness in the little things, taking money to somebody, will give God an opportunity to say, you have been faithful the little, I'm going to give you more. And so here you go, let's do the next thing. And so the next thing that we see here, and the last thing we see is that courage pours have a whatever it takes attitude for the kingdom. Whatever it takes. Look at the names of the people in this church, verse 1, chapter 13. In the church at Antioch, there are prophets and teachers. Barnabas, the man. Simeon called Niger. He's from North Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, also from Africa. Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Literally, that means he was a kinsman, a brother of Herod. So that means the person who said Jesus must be crucified, his brother... The one who lived with him, whether it's a half-brother, step-brother, whatever it is, but his kinsman has gotten infected with the gossip of the gospel, and his life is transformed, and he's part of the leadership of this church. And then you've got, of course, Saul, and then it says in verse 5, John, the gospel writer of the book of Mark. John also called Mark. Think about it. you got like a stacked lineup at the church of Antioch. You got Barnabas. You got Paul. So Barnabas is like the, I mean, he's the man. You got Saul, pastor, preacher, teacher, church planner. You got Mark, who's going to write the gospel. We love Mark because it's the shortest gospel. We're like, yeah, I love Mark. This is Mark. Okay, these are the people in the church. And look at where they, they come from. Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. They come from Cyrene. They come from uh, uh, from Africa, they come from Tarsus, all these different places. This is a stacked church. <laughs> this is the dream team before the Olympics ever came to be. I mean, if you're a member of this church, hey, today, guys, uh, Barnabas is sick, so he can't preach today. So we're going to have Saul, uh, actually Saul, his, his, um, his donkey, his horse uh, fell, and uh, Saul can't make it. So uh, sorry, we got to go third string. Mark, the gospel writer, is going to come, and he's going to preach to us today. Like, what the heck? Like, that's awesome. Hey, you got all these people, and this is like the most diverse church in the world. Well, it's the only diverse church in the world, but it's diverse. You got people from all over there. Be very easy for them to say, hey, you know what? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and instead of going to the ends of the earth, check it, guys. The ends of the earth have come to us. We don't need to do anything. We just keep on proclaiming. They keep on coming to us. They didn't say that, though. While they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. They're all praying together. Barnabas, Saul. Hey, Barnabas and Saul. Hey, come over here. God wants to set you apart. For what? Hey, for what, God? For the work to which I've called them. Hey, what's the work to which you've called them? You don't know. I'm not going to tell you. Just for the work to which. God's saying, listen, the best 
that you've got. I'm going to take them and I'm going to send them because there's a kingdom mission that I'm going to put them on. Verse 3, so after they had fasted and prayed, placed their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Spirit, went down to all these different places. Verse 5 says, and they proclaimed the word of God in all of these different cities. And thus begins Paul's first missionary journey. Wow. Barnabas and Saul could have said, you know what? I think we might have misheard the Spirit I think he's sending Lucius, why don't you go ahead? Manaean, why don't you go ahead? We're like kind of important people here. He said, God, whatever it takes for your kingdom, whatever it takes, and you know what it would cost, Paul, what it would cost Barnabas, both of these men, giving their lives and being martyred for the sake of the gospel. But whatever it takes, we'll go. Whatever you want us to do, we'll do. And that attitude pours courage into the lives of people. Do you know people who have this attitude? They say, hey, whatever it takes, I'll go to the nations. I'll go across the seas. I'll go across the streets. I'll go across the seats to find somebody. Whatever it takes, God, whatever it takes. I know a lot of people who say they have that attitude. But when push comes to shove, hey, that sixth grader, those sixth graders, they need a ride to SNF. Can you go get them? Can you go bring them to church? Whatever it takes. Oh, but you know what? They live a little bit too far from me. Yeah, I don't think I can do that. Hey, you know what then? Maybe it'll be really good for you to come and why don't you be the kind of, why don't you, you know, you have such a beautiful smile. Why don't you go and greet people at the door? Uh, but when you do that, why don't you come first to the morning service so that you can worship God, so that you can really be able to greet new people? I'd love to be a greeter, but I, I don't think I can come to the morning service. How come? Well, I work late on Sunday night, and I'm just going to be too tired. A lot of times what we say is whatever it takes really means whatever it takes as long as I don't have to give up my comfort. Hello. Whatever it takes, as long as I can have my air conditioned. Whatever it takes, as long as it doesn't push me out of my comfort zone. As, whatever it takes, as long as I can still have my nights. Whatever it takes, as long as it doesn't take that long to get out there. But when you see a whatever it takes attitude, and it changes the world. Yesterday, our, our bulletin ministry folks were making the bulletin and I was sitting with them and, and I was looking out the window and I saw young man John Shire. He's got his goggles on. It's Saturday morning. It's Africa hot out there. He's got his weed whacker and he's just going to work on it. Whacking weeds. No one ever recognizes, applauds him. Him and another brother, Aaron Hines, <laughs> every Saturday morning riding on that thing, the dead of Orlando summer. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. We have our, our intern, Josiah. You heard from him last week. He was in Virginia, and he was writing. He's like, you know, Pastor Diella, I want to do whatever I can to, to serve Harvest. I noticed that there's a cleaning ministry. 
And I'd love to start there. I'd love to start there. Cleaning our church. Eugene, Josiah wants to be part of the cleaning ministry that pours courage into Eugene. We asked Eugene to start this ministry of cleaning. He didn't say, oh, yeah, you know what? I love cleaning. I love cleaning thousands of square feet. Yeah, that's all. I I dream of doing that. I was just waiting for you to tell me. (laughs) Whatever it takes. At, At first, it's like, Hey, come be part of the cleaning ministry. We'll give you great food that Eugene makes for the cleaning ministry. And they come for the barbecue, and then uh, slowly they begin to drop out. But now, this cleaning ministry is a badge of honor. Like, you serve faith in the cleaning ministry. You end your time well. You do anything for our church. And because you got that heart, whatever it takes. And half the pe- most of the people in our cleaning ministry, they would never do this in their, their, their nine, nine to six work day. They come in their, like, nicely dressed clothes, and, 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 and they put on their blue vinyl gloves, and they're taking out the trash like this. They, they, in their workplaces, they don't do stuff like that, but they come into church, and they say, whatever it takes. Remember, we had R&R weekend over Labor Day, renewal and retreat. We're shifting gears after Sunday worship, going into our renewal, uh, our retreat period, and we go eat lunch for two and a half hours. Eugene didn't eat lunch. He went and he vacuumed every room in the education building because he knew people were going to sleep there. I said, you, bring you some lunch? He's like, I'm good, man. I'm going to eat later. Washed, wiped down all the showers in here so that people could use it, even though he knew that he was not going to sleep here, nor would he ever use that shower. But doing it, whatever it takes, for the sake of the kingdom. Pastor Daniel, same thing. Wherever, whatever it takes. Hey, can, hey someone's, someone needs to get into church. Are you at church? I'm not at church, but I'll, I'll, I'll head over there right now. I'll open the door for them. Whatever it takes. When I see people in, our, uh, in these whatever it takes roles, guy, after I, I preach a couple services and, and have a meeting on Sunday, I'm like tired and I'm ready to, to, to go home and watch some football. Yeah, watch my fantasy football team get killed again. Yeah, but I don't care. I'm ready. But I see these... It, it, I think everyone is gone, and then I see someone mopping a floor in the corner. Man, that attitude, whatever it takes, that pours courage into me. And I say, man, send me to another place. I'll preach somewhere else. I'll do whatever you need me to do, whatever, because I got strength in me. These guys work 40, 50 hours a week, and then they come to church 5, 10, 15 hours, serving their house church, serving in different ministries. Like, man, I got I to put in my 70 hours to serve our church too then. These people, not just you, guys like James J. back there, all the people, they said, deal, whatever, I'll do whatever for the sake of our church. They've said that on multiple occasions, and on multiple occasions, they've cashed that in. But man, what happens when we begin doing that for each other? Just pouring courage into each other's lives. And literally, it changed the world. And our lives are still being changed because of these people who went for it and gave everything that they had, whatever it takes. From this one little, one big city in Antioch, this one group of people who said, God, it's all, it's all yours. They didn't learn that in Antioch. They actually learned it outside of Jerusalem. You don't learn this kind of love in Hollywood. You learn it at Calvary. This was the attitude of Jesus, the attitude of Jesus Christ. He knew where to get filled. That's why he was always going 
Let me go spend time at the Mount of Olives. I've got to pray. I've got to worship my Father. This is where I get filled. Send the disciples across the Sea of Galilee so I can go up onto a mountain. I can pray to God, my Father. Send them out. Hey, Pete, the crowds are getting too big, so let's jump in a boat, guys. Let's jump in a boat. We've got to get filled again. He fasted for 40 days because he needed the strength in order to fight against all the assail of Satan's minions, the demons, the temptation in the, gar- in the, in the wilderness, all of hell fighting against him in order that he would not fulfill the mission. But he said, God, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And it was he who with his dying breath cried out in victory, not in defeat. He said, it is finished. It's done. He didn't say it 32 years. You know what, God, this is too much. Father, it's too much. Take me to heaven. Shoot me with a bullet all the way. His dying breath, his last drop of blood, in order that all of that poured into your life, into mine, whatever it takes to finish the mission so that we would say, God, whatever it takes to finish our mission. Man, the world is waiting yet to see this church, our church, unleashed for the glory of God. Whatever it takes for your name's sake, for your kingdom. That's our inheritance. That's our destiny. That's our future. That's our now. Let's live in this. Let's pray together. Let's pray for a moment. Are you empty? Let's pray. Father, fill me. Have you said whatever it takes? As long as you can remain in your comfort zone. Let's let God fill us so that we could be pushed out of our comfort for the glory of God. Are you about to finish a season of life? Let's finish well. Let's finish well. Let's pray for a minute, and then I'll pray for us. about the moments of life that really changed us. A lot of times it's through the attitude of people who said, whatever it takes. People like Barnabas and Saul who said, yeah, God, if you want me to go to a different ministry, I'll go serve in a different way. I'll go. Go to a place I don't even know what that's like. just life, but to finish each day well, because it may be our last day. We never know. To finish each day, to finish each season, to finish each mission, to finish each task to the best of our ability so that the day that we die, 
would be the day that we love you more than any other day. Help us. Help us to pour courage into each other's lives for the glory of Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. We need you. We look to you. Fill us, Lord, for all these things in Jesus' name.